super excited, but I have a question for most of you guys here, especially if this is your first time. If you've ever shared your story, you guys know how difficult it is to get on stage. And so uh, as you go through this, as you get a chance to listen to the name, try to imagine yourself being on that journey. Uh, it does take a lot to be able to get up on stage. It takes a lot to be able to uh, have with us really share your story. And so um, our first speaker uh, is Tanisha Martin. And her story is how losing myself and 150 husbands made me find myself. So everyone, welcome to the stage, Tanisha Martin. Their, their thing. 
once we realized, um, once I learned that they were there, we realized this is going to be a lot more to manage in our relationship, and I was going to need to meet them. So for Legion, we planned uh, to create a scenario where there would be safeguards in place for my safety, and so that he would relinquish the body, the control of the body, back to Simon. Uh, before that could happen, Simon and I were making out on the couch, and I don't know what making out means to all of you guys, but to me it's just kissing with clothes. Okay, don't let your mind run wild. <laughs> so we were making out, yes, he was on top of me, sorry, Mom. Um, and all of a sudden he went limp and just like landed on me and was heavy. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And then he opened his eyes and looked at me and said, are you desperate for me? Probably sounds silly coming out of my voice, but for him, it's romance in the deep, sinister voice. And I froze in fear. I thought, oh my gosh, this is Legion. And he started being aggressive with me, and I thought, how do I respond? And I said, well, I'm going to respond with compassion and see what happens. And I said, you can't really be here. We're trying to have a plan so I can meet you. This isn't the way. Um, he didn't really care what I was saying. He was continuing to be aggressive. And then suddenly, he was knocked out. He went up again, and Simon came back. Timmy, are you okay? I'm so sorry. I couldn't maintain control of the body. Are you okay? And I'm like, yes, yes, I'm okay. I'm shaken, but I'm okay. And he said, I'm going to kill him. And I thought, well, let's not go there because we don't know what's going to happen if you kill one of your main person else. So um, that was my first meeting of Legion. My first meeting of Six Claw was very different. Uh, Simon had an audio sensory type of a reaction whenever a train went by uh, my home and, and the horns were there. So he was laying in my lap and I was comforting him and I was singing one of my all-time favorite love songs. You fill up my senses like a night forest. And he looked at me and he said, huh, not much of a singer, are you? <laughs> And I thought, oh, six o'clock? And he's like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> so that was my first meeting of six o'clock. And he was just like that, just nonchalant, flippant, whatever. Um, <clears throat> Later we went back to Legion and we decided to go ahead and go, go ahead and plan to meet him. And we planned a day out to lunch and go to a movie and then a time when someone would come back. During that time, actually prior to that, Legion had profusely apologized for treating me the way he did and he hoped to have his own chance. So we went into this with a whole new uh, feeling with each other, and over the course of our time together, he softened and, and became friendly with me, and we fell in love too. The problem now was that Simon didn't return at his scheduled time. So that was very concerning, and all of a sudden, Simon was missing. So now we can actually did take control of the body. Um, this whole time, we're, we are aware of the three personalities, and then now we're in this scenario where Simon's missing, Legion is in control, and Six Claw is relenting to be friendly with him for the sake of me. One day, um, he comes to, and I say, oh, who is it? And he recoils in fear, and sinks back and looks around, and I go, oh, what's going on? And I say, hi, I'm Tisha. I'm really glad to meet you. What's your name? And he put his finger in the air and wrote G L O 
R I A. Oh, your name is Gloria? She was so happy that I found out her name. And um, she couldn't speak, but she could write clearly, so I got her pen and paper and I found out that she was a sex slave for her master in the inside world who was called Animal. And Animal had found out about the outside world and had decided that he was curious about it and he wanted to meet me. So she told me, be careful. Well, it wasn't too much, too much later that he did come out and immediately he demanded that I perform sex, a sex act that I didn't want to do or else he would per we, we would do something else that I really didn't want to do even more than that. So I complied. And hopefully everybody in this room truly understands consent. And that is, coerced consent is not consent. Coerced consent is sexual assault. And when he was done, he put a pillow over my face and smothered me long enough for me to get scared and to struggle beneath. Then he removed it and said, tell Legion it was a professional courtesy. And then he went away. Um, I assumed that professional courtesy meant he didn't do worse things to me out of respect for Legion, a fellow warlord. So six o'clock came back because Legion was now off in the desert trying to find Simon and the whole thing. And six o'clock felt horrible at how weak he was that, he, that this happened and then that I was harmed. And he consented, he took himself to a mental health care facility. Um, not much happened, he came back home and we continued on. Um, this meeting of Gloria and Animal was the spark that started a year and a half of the personality explosion. Now I'm meeting a bunch of personalities. Some are wonderful. Josele was one of those. He was based on the character in Halo, if you're familiar with that game, um, and it was the Arbor. And in Simon's world, his name was Josele. And he first met me under um, not great circumstances either. He held a nerf gun up to my eye and demanded that I tell the coordinates to Earth. And, but later we became friendly, we fell in love, and he was one of my biggest supporters. There were battles inside, unknown armies coming. Um, one came out and met me, his name is Scorpio, and he warned me that their armies were coming and that he was going to betray, because in five minutes we talked, he also fell in love with me. And he was going to betray their leader, Praetor, um, and he told me to tell my people that not to fear the Scorpions. So it was kind of beautiful and also crazy and bizarre, and it might seem wild, and it was wild, and it really did happen to me. I don't know what was going on really with him, but I know what happened to me. So I lost myself in his love. I lost myself in the excitement of the three personalities in the first place because it was interesting and unique, and I was special to like have to deal with this really great adventure. Then it was the multiple person, the many, many personalities, and I stopped counting at 150, and he, it, it became more about managing that. Um, sometimes up to 15 switches a day. And about a year and a half later, that kind of calmed down. It was always there, but the like, massive explosion part calmed down. And we could soon start to look at actual things that were happening in our lives. All this entire time, he was always in such a weird crisis mode that I had stuffed anything that was going on with me down. And that included even being able to live a basic 
functioning life because he usurped so much energy. And I lost my first big full-time freelance graphic design client, and I worked as much as I could but wasn't making enough. You won't even believe me, but he actually could hold down a job. He was semi-moderately functioning in the outside world, even while all of this was going on in his inside world and at home. Um, but it wasn't enough, so we racked up tens of thousands of dollars on my credit cards, just in my name, including mortgage payments, and eventually I lost my home to foreclosure. But why? Why did I keep doing this? Because at that point, I was the only person on earth who knew what was going on. I knew more about him at that point than he did, because I recorded everything because I needed to keep track of all these people. So I was trapped in this thing. Um, as the personality thing calmed down and financial ruin was upon us, uh, we were dealing with that. But Legion, who was still the main personality because Simon never returned, um, he stuff with him became worse. His his infidelity, both through sexting and in person, that had happened off and on through our whole relationship, was getting more frequent. Um, he started being more violent with me. He choked me. He shoved me into a wall and caved the wall in. I mean, not the whole wall, but it caved in, and I was really thankful there wasn't a stud right there because it hurt. And we separated several times. But every time we separated, someone like Giselle, that I mentioned earlier, who I loved and who was amazing with me, would suddenly text me out of the blue, either saying something like, Hey, hey, baby, I'm moving home. I can't wait to see you. And I'm like, we're separated. What's going on? Or they'd say, hey, um, what's going on? Why are we over here? And where are you? And I'd have to say, I'm so sorry, Giselle, or whoever it was. I love you, but we're separated. We can't do this anymore. And he would say, no, what? No, this can't, this can't be. He said, please, you promised us that you wouldn't give up on us, that you would fight for us. We're here fighting. And then, we would devise a plan for me to reconcile with the main personalities with whom I was predominantly separated um, So I got stuck back in over and over and over again because of the wonderful ones. Um, finally, we hit a point where we were so devastated financially that I knew I had to do something different. And so far, everything I had done was for him. And this was for him too because it affected both of us still ignoring all of my stuff that needed to be addressed and ignoring what was really happening to me. And um, I had been following a coach for some time but never really implemented it. And I thought, you know what? It's do or die now. We need to fix our financial situation and not have all the stress. And immediately all the stuff inside of me said, well, you can't do that. You're worthless. You know this. And I said, yeah, I do know this. But we have to. So I ignored that voice, and I pretended that I was something more than I was in the hopes that something could change. And it was like, and I created a financial goal, and it was like 10% the action and 90% the inner work that I did to step forward in a way that was completely foreign and impossible to me. And I hit my goal, and I surpassed my goal. And in 30 days, I ended up tripling my income. And again, it wasn't the 10% work, it wasn't even the money, it was the 90% inner work that occurred that showed me for the first time in my life that I matter and that I have actual power in my life. 
And with, the, with those two things in place, I was able to look at my marriage and say, oh, I don't need to sacrifice myself for him. And I can't save him anyway. He has to do that for himself like I just did. So I left, and I was safe to do so for some reason. Um, this time, it stuck. No texts from anyone trying to beg me back. I think they knew that it was real, and it was real. So then I had to go through all my trauma healing, and I did. Um, whole new experience with how those triggers showed up. And I, I, did, I did the healing work. And now I'm speaking out about the story. One, it's bizarre. But <laughs> most people don't relate to the bizarreness of it. But everyone can learn from like, some of the different ways that abuse shows up. So I'm here to raise awareness about that. And I'm also here to remove stigma around victims of abuse because guess what? I wasn't weak. I was in that situation not because of being weak, but because I was strong. My strength was why I was in that. And the last reason why I'm sharing this is because I want everyone to know that they matter and that they have actual power in their life. I wake up every day now and I love myself. It doesn't even matter what problems I have. I'm still recovering from some of the problems that happen. I'm still working away at fixing all that. But it doesn't even matter because I'm happy and I love myself. And that can be for everybody. So just remember that it's your life. Show up and kick ass. Everybody give it up for Tanisha Martin one more time. Between 10 and 100 times per week, someone would slaughter some journey. One night, I altered the stop signs on either end of the block to say, <laughs> Don't stop believing.
It's interesting though when you really look at each of us, if we're going on our journey, each of us has a story that overlaps with somebody else. And if we take the time to sit down and listen, there's going to be things that you will find out about other people that will make you do a deep dive for yourself and try to extract and find something that you can bring to the forefront as valuing somebody else. Uh, so really, for myself, like being open and vulnerable, my biggest piece of this journey, I went through a divorce. A couple other things before that, though, as I was writing up there, I was thinking about it, and it's unique, but because of being open and vulnerable with individuals, you start finding stories from others. Uh, Patrick and I, with our podcast, we've had individuals on there that used to be uh, drug kingpin, uh, former B1 athletes, pastor, now coach. We've had individuals that dealt with alcoholism, very a lot of uh, autoimmune diseases, and uh, they're out there doing big things. We've had individuals that were former military in the army. She went to her first duty station. They asked, "Are you a bitch or you a slut?" And so it's one of those things that you're like, "Wow, really?" But as you go through your journey, things are going to pop up. So for myself, the interesting thing is, it was my junior year of high school. This is part of it, but. My mom offered me a thousand dollars not to play football. And I was like, you know, that's cool, thanks for the money. And then I was talking about potentially going out there and breaking somebody else's leg. And we were doing a scrimmage, leg was planted, somebody uh, ended up falling in my leg, broke my lower <laughs> left leg. So I've got a rod that goes from my kneecap down my ankle. But the unique thing on that is, as I was being taken to the hospital, they ended up giving me 1,500cc of morphine. So if you take morphine, that's quite a bit. Um, uh, they're like, yeah, you're up for two minutes, out for five, up for two, out for five. But there was a chance because of how it broke, I could have lost my lower left leg. And so I could have been the dude with one leg and a face leg. I could have been a pirate for all we know. So, but that's one of those things that you just never know the power of the spoken word, how you speak, what you say, what may show up because of what you state, even if it's a joke. Another one, before I went through my divorce, me and my ex-wife, we uh, experienced a miscarriage. And so anybody that's had that experience before where you lost a child that you don't know who that child was, who they were going to uh, grow up to become, what impact that they would have on the world. It's one of those things as a guy, I didn't show emotion. I balled up and just kind of went along my way. I was talking to Gary before I came up here in regards to the fact that I should have cried. I should have uh, allowed that off my emotions and showed up as a human being. But society tells us your guy don't show emotions. And then we flip to the other side and look at women, and women are told, don't be angry, don't show anger. But that's a human emotion that we all experience, and it ends up stunning us as we get older because of what somebody else has told us to do or how to live our life. So for myself, the transformation period really went through a divorce. My ex-wife, we were together for 13 years, married for 11, and it happened that we were in Vegas. So the story of what, what happened to Vegas stays in Vegas, I don't know. But I'm sitting there, my wife was looking at me like, I don't know if I love you. I don't know if I want to be married anymore. So it's like, you're standing there, and you're watching a WWE match, and you see the wrestler run down the steel ramp with a steel chair. You're sitting there, and you get smacked in your face. And so you're like, man, what did I do wrong? 
who am I? What's my value? What's my worth? But I look at it because as we grow up, a lot of times as kids, we don't get the validation. And so you become an adult, you get into a relationship, and you look at that other person and you say, love me, but I don't love myself. And then the other person's in that same boat that says, I don't love myself, but you have to love me. So when you think about that, how screwed up is that for us as humans interacting and we're looking outside of ourselves for somebody else to love us, to end up at the piece of not knowing who I truly was and not accepting myself for who I am, lost and all. So it's unique. There's number 39. And so I talked to Patrick on this, a couple other people, but you're probably wondering, like, 39, what's the importance of 39? So for men, the typical daily stat for men that will kill themselves because of an expired relationship is 39 men. So think about that. Why do we have that issue where men are killing themselves because of the loss of a relationship? And it goes back to the fact that we can look at this as Superman. Superman and the Fortress of Solitude. So as a guy, I'm going to go on my own and I'm going to try to do everything on my own. I'm not going to open up, I'm not going to share my story because what is society going to think about me? The biggest thing that I told myself was I wasn't worthy. I wasn't meant to be in a relationship. I was worthless. What's the point? I never got to the point of thinking about committing suicide but I went through all the emotions. I went through depression, I think. When I look back, it's hard for me because a lot of people that know who I am, very upbeat, very outgoing. And so it is one of those things that depression and that type of emotion, I really don't know. But I went through it, and I was like, I can do this on my own, I don't want to tell anybody. But I look at that stat of 39 men a day, I could have been one of those men that killed myself because of the loss of the relationship. So as I'm going through this journey and learning to love myself, learning to accept myself for who I am, the power of stepping in and knowing who I truly am, showing up, and I tell people, I'm like, you either love me or hate me, there's no in between, because that allows me to show up and be true and authentic to myself, and you accept it or you don't accept it. I can't judge you for that, that's your own decision to decide what you're going to do. But it's the fact of showing up and being vulnerable and transparent, that opens up the doors for people to share their story. There was a time that another speaker that we had, uh, Quentin, I was hanging out with Hugh, and it's, it's unique because you'll hear somebody tell you to do something that you're like, this is stupid, why am I going to do this? So we're sitting down eating dinner, and I was upset and mad. Good time. Hello? Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> All right, yeah, cool. Uh, but it was, it was interesting because I was in a, a spot that I was angry and upset. And I had these ideations that I know who my ex-wife was dating, so I dropped the kids off, drive by the house, see the car. I want to stop and go grab the rocks or have a knife with me and go slash the tires of the gentleman that she was dating. But then if I looked and if I did that, what good does that do for anybody? Especially myself, I've got two daughters. What is that going to do for my daughters? If I get arrested and go put, uh, get put in jail. But we're sitting there and just going through an exercise and he's like, just shut your eyes and feel where that pain is 
frustrations radiating from. So I went through it, and I told you, I was like, this is stupid, I don't want to do it, but I thought it uh, So I sat there, and it was an empty spot in my chest. It was hot, heavy, it was hollow. And then I'm sitting there looking and thinking, and thinking, man, what is the color? And the color was black. And so it's unique as I'm sitting there doing it, and just watching it run its course. So I run its course, on my arms, on my fingertips. And then after that time, I got to the point where I was able to forgive myself. Because the unique thing when we look and think about forgiveness, forgiveness is for yourself, not the other person. Because if you try to ask for forgiveness from the other person, they may not be at a stage to show that forgiveness to you. So they may utilize that against yourself. So forgiveness is for yourself. Forgive yourself for what took place, whatever came out God-wise, knowledge-wise with that. And then the closure piece, really accepting what took place, walking in and starting to step into my purpose of going and sitting down with men and women and just listening to stories. But my big goal is really to work with more showmen because of the status 39 and 8. Men don't have that spot to open up and have the space where they can talk, share their emotions, and not be worried about being judged. Because one of the things that we look at when it comes to sharing your story is that judgment piece. And I joke, and I'm like, I think it's about 85% of the judgment actually comes from ourselves. The rest is from society. But honestly, if you think about it, we judge ourselves so heavy that we don't show up and share our story and our message, the true story message, because this right here is a core message that can be a hindrance for you because it's such a core aspect of who you are. You're showing up and opening up the curtains to let somebody else see that dark side, to see the darkness potentially. And so by doing that, you're like, I can't do that. What's somebody else going to think? What are they going to say about me? But the thing is, what is somebody going to do by you sharing the message? By you sharing what you've done, the steps that you've taken to heal yourself, to work on yourself, what can you do for somebody else? So Tanisha, with her story, I'm sitting there, I'm like, 150 husbands? I don't know, that's like, go with one person sometimes, it's difficult, but it's one of those unique things that that sharing of the story is, is huge because of the impact that you have for somebody else. So as I've gone through, my biggest impact I tell people really is one thing to think about is the biggest relationship that you want to work on and that you want to heal is the relationship with yourself. Not everybody else that's inside your bubble is a complementary piece to who you are. And it goes down to this saying, which I was talking to a, uh, another coach, and she said the saying actually came from Girl Housewives in New Jersey or something like that. The whole happy wife, happy life. Uh, if I could find the person, be like, really, really think about that because we look at that. My perspective, uh, perspective on that is, you have the potential woman have the onus on her that somebody else can make her happy, and then the guy's got this perception that I've got to make her happy, but ultimately. You gotta make yourself happy, and then the other person is there to be a complimentary piece to yourself. But ultimately, being here, being able to walk into my purpose, my story, share what I've done, it's opened up the door because a lot of people are like, wow, that's impactful, that's something that needs to take place, especially when it comes to dealing with men, because a lot of men don't get that space, a lot of men don't have that opportunity to be true to themselves and show up and be vulnerable. And so it is one of those unique things when you start hearing stories, 
direct parent people say that's something that's needed, but the power of finding somebody else's story, finding the nuggets in there that you need to go and impact the world and impact the lives of others, but it goes down to the fact of are you sharing your story, are you sharing your message, and are you being vulnerable and uh, transparent? But it comes down to the fact that that's not the easiest thing because it's a scary thing to do to be vulnerable and transparent. So it's one of those things to really consider, look at, and ask yourself. Do you truly love yourself? Do you truly accept who you are? Because once you get to the point where you can accept yourself for who you are and love yourself for who you are, the world opens up in a different way, perspectives different, perspectives started adjusting and showing up differently, and then you open up the door to hear the story of others, and then share those stories with other individuals, and impact the lives of others. So for me, it's one of those things that you got to turn the script because of what society has told us, these things that somebody else has believed and pushed into us as an individual, does that truly fit who you are? Is that truly what you need? Is that served to somebody else, that belief to somebody else? Truly your belief. A lot of times it's not, but we end up having the trouble of questioning our own beliefs and taking a deep dive and ask ourselves, are these beliefs, are these stories that I tell myself, are these truly mine? Or are these somebody else's that I need to get rid of and create my own script? Mom, rule book, play with my own Legos, go and have the experiences, experience life. Because that's truly what needs to take place. Last thing is, I think this, the picture was on Instagram today. There's a picture of me holding a loaf of bread, and it goes into the experience was I was going to go on a blind date, and there was a photographer that was going to be there taking pictures, so I could go look at what some of these photographers do. Some crazy stories. But she's like, I need you to go grab a loaf of bread and take a picture so I know it's truly you that's saying it's you. So that uh, picture right there stuck out because it was an experience I was going to go try for the first time, see what happens. Um, but ultimately, go and try out life. Go find those experiences and find out truly who you are. Love yourself and find that inner force story of yours that needs to be shared with others to impact the world and make it a better place.
where you're going to? Do you like the things that life is showing you? Where are you going to? Do you know? Whenever I heard Diane Ross sing that song when I was a child, I would cry. And my family would laugh at me. Why are you crying over that song? Well, in my mind, it was because I didn't know. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know what I was going to be when I grew up. And it bothered me. So instead of trying to figure out what I was going to be, I accepted what everyone told me I was going to be. How many of you have done that? I put on the world. I became the best little girl I could be, the best student I could be. And as I got older, I was the perfect wife, as perfect as I could possibly be. <laughs> and then the, the mother that was everywhere. I was the one who was always at the PTA meetings, always baking the cookies for everybody. I had to be June Cleaver. Anybody remember who June Cleaver was? And notice the dress? Yeah, I, I wanted to be perfect in every way, shape, and form because I didn't know what I was going to be. Years go by and I grow up and I, I, I'm a student, I get my engineer, I go to engineering school, I, I get married to my high school sweetheart, I have children, I have 2.4 animals in my house, a house, and a, a picnic fence, I mean, everything I thought I was supposed to have. I'm also a yes person. Somebody sounds familiar now? <laughs> I'm a yes person. I kept saying yes to everything, and I kept saying yes, and I was putting on more and more, and I was freaking miserable. But to be the perfect person, the right person, I could not say no. One day, I was sitting at my computer, it's May 2014, and I am looking at my Mac, and my screen, my husband's insane, he bought me this like 50-something screen, inch monitor, and it's filled with other people's stuff that I'm working on. And I'm looking at it with all these time limits. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Please, just give me a freaking break. And my alarm goes off. It's time to pick up the kids for school. Of course, I'm the lady who picks up every kid at school and picks them up and brings them all home. It's one of my jobs. So I get in my car, and I'm so frustrated at this point because I have a time limit. I'm sitting in the school parking lot for an hour waiting for kids to come out, and I'm tired. So I roll down my windows, and I'm driving really quick to the school, and I've got music blaring because I'm kind of a Natalie Cole freak. So I was driving along, minding my business, when out of the orange-colored sky, flash, bam, Alakazam, my life flashed before my eyes. A little girl ran a stop sign, she was skipping school, and she T-boned me. The next thing I know, I'm running out of the car, I check on her, she's perfectly fine. Then the next thing I remember are the paramedics over me telling me, breathe, breathe, ma'am, you must breathe. I don't remember anything between them, but apparently it took the medics about 45 minutes to get there. I was out. I insisted to the ambulance, I was perfectly fine. Do not take me to an emergency room. I have children to take care of. I will not leave this place. Until my husband gets here, I will not leave. They're like, man, you really need to go to the hospital. My husband will bring me to the hospital. Yeah, I'm a soccer mom. And so I, I have a stubborn and I refuse to go. We finally get to the emergency room. They say, yeah, you're fine. You're fine. You have a broken rib. Your foot's a little messed up, but you're fine. Go home. Here's some meds. Go. I was fine. Twelve days later, I walk into the bank. Where the? Well, I go to my bank. 
And I walk up to my, I handed my, my teller, give her my check, and I said, I'd like to deposit this, and I'd like a hundred back. And she said, excuse me, I'd like to deposit this, do I have to say enunciate? I'd like to deposit this, I'd like a hundred dollars back. <laughs> she says, Michelle, you're saying macaroni and cheese spaghetti, I, I don't know what you want. And I look at my daughter, what do you mean, macaroni and cheese spaghetti? What am I saying? I want money back. My daughter puts her hand on my shoulder. She says, it's okay, Mom. You do this all the time. What? Yeah, Mom, you don't make sense. What? In my head, I'm perfectly clear. But what I find out is I'm not. We go to the hospital. My husband brings me there. We end up bringing me to the Wounded Warrior Center. And I go there for a while, and what they find out is I have a traumatic brain injury. I am missing four areas of my brain that died. My frontal lobe over my left ear, the back of my head, my two hemispheres had dislocated, disconnected. Now, by all scientific terms, I shouldn't be standing at all. For the next two years, I didn't. First, it was the language that went away. And then, my ability to walk without falling went away. For two years, I was stuck in my head, fully cognizant of everything that was happening around me, but unable to speak. How many of you have inner critics? Kind of like multiple personalities, right? I have at least 15 of them, and they were all in my head telling me what a worthless piece of crap I was. Whenever you have those voices come into your head, and you realize, ah, I'll just get busy and I'll do something else, try being stuck. I argued with those voices. To me, I thought it was a month. But I found out it was two years I had been arguing with them. And each time I was arguing, it would take me a long time to prove to them that I wasn't worthless. No, I am a good mother. They're good kids. But I am a good wife. My husband's really happy. I am a good person. I'm worth it. You should die. Bless you. And for two years, I sat there in my head, fighting with myself. And I wrote a book in my head. Yes, I know, I wrote a book in my head. But I wrote a book in my head, and it was arguing with the voices. And the doctor said they didn't know if I was ever going to speak or walk again. So here I was with this book in my head, making up this world in my head, fighting with my inner critics, and just trying to live. At the end of that two-year mark, I remember sitting in my living room, my husband, every day for two years, would bring me downstairs, put me on the couch, put all my meds in order, and he'd put timers on them. And then he'd put my, thank goodness for phones, he'd put timers on my phone for every time I had to take a pill, when I should get up to eat and have my daughter come and get me, when I needed to go to the bathroom. I mean, it was all scheduled. That day, for some reason, I was alone in the house. So I sat on the couch, contemplating how to kill myself. Everything happens for a reason. See, I'm a very stubborn woman. If I was able to move, I would have done it. The only thing that saved me is I couldn't move. I was saved by the thing that I hated the most. And I sat there and I was so angry because here I was, had a perfect plan to take my life, and I couldn't do it. 
and I looked up into the heavens and I screamed in my head, if you hate me so much, then just kill me now. And I heard, you're not dead yet, get up. I don't know about you, if you hear a voice that like vibrates through your entire body, every cell in my body, every molecule in the room, it shook the house. The next thing I know, I'm on my knees in the middle of the living room, I don't know how I got there, and I'm saying, thank you for everything, thank you. Thank you for everything you did to me, everything I experienced. Because in that split second that I heard you're not dead yet, get up, I saw every time I was beaten, every time I was raped. Every time I was alone and cold, every time I thought I was supposed to die, there was something with me, huge and comforting. And I realized I wasn't dead yet. And neither are you. So here's the thing. I promised whatever that was, God, the universe, the tree force, God, I don't know who it was, but whoever it is, they spoke to me and they told me to get my butt up. And I promised whatever it was, and in my world it's God. I will walk through any door you give me. I will never question again. Please, please, just give me back my brain. You can take my body, just give me back my brain. And I'll do anything to live. My husband said when he came home, he found me on the computer. He goes, how'd you get here? I said, I have to speak. He says, how are you talking? I speak. For two years, this poor man's been carrying me everywhere and holding me everywhere and translating all my sounds like, you know, I, I couldn't speak, so I would mimic whatever I was trying to tell him. And here I was speaking and, right, uh, speaking and talking to him like that. Now, it wasn't an overnight success. I didn't start walking and talking like this. It took many, 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 many moments. I'm still actually in it. But to find who I was, I realized that, that entire process of my childhood up to 46 was a process, a journey of me trying to be someone else. Once I got my head hit, you know, some of us need two by fours. I had a car. <laughs> the two by four car told me, shut up, sit down, and listen to yourself. You keep saying yes to everyone, but not yourself. That car accident, this traumatic brain injury, has forced me to sit down and evaluate who I am. I promised that I would talk. I promised I would walk through every door. I promised I would do my very best everything I could be. So I became a speaker. I started traveling around the world and sharing people the story of this voice that told me to get up, you're not dead yet. Because what my thought is, is I'm not the only one walking around with a fog. I'm not the only one with the veil on my face thinking, I'm a good person. I'm going to do what people want me to do because people are going to like me. Screw other people. <laughs> and not in a bad way. You will serve the world better by being the best version of you than you will by serving their immediate needs. I've learned that because as I started traveling, remember that little caveat I told God and the universe and everything? Give me back my brain, you can have my body. 
I was traveling. I was preparing to go to India, and I received an award from the economic, a Women's Economic Forum in New Delhi, India. And I was going, and I started feeling wrong. Long process, took about eight months. Finally got to the doctor, and the doctor finally sees me, and she says, holy smokes, she had breast cancer. I said, what? And she said, you have breast cancer. I start crying. She said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I told you you have breast cancer. I said, no. I'm not crying about the breast cancer. I kind of knew I had it. I did. She said, then why are you crying? I said, because I told God I, I would go do something. And I, I've only been doing it for four months. I had a lot to do in so little time. She says, well, here's the other bad news then. The breast cancer you have, you have three months to live. And I said, get me out of here, because i got things to do. What do you need to do? Within 60 days, they cut off my breast. Within the next 60 days after that, I was in India. My husband's like, holy crap, please don't go to India. Your immune system's gone. I'd rather die doing what I love to do and doing what I'm supposed to do than sitting here waiting for death to take me. You see, I have a benefit. I know 99% of what's going to get me. It's probably going to be the cancer. So, I'm going to keep running until it gets me. How many of you have stopped living already? How many of you are fighting the journey? I'm, when people see me, I'm always happy, I'm always smiling, kind of bouncing around, just kind of bougie, I guess. <laughs> but it's because life is worth living every day. I celebrate every day. Yes, I'm still in my cancer journey. Yes, I'm in a lot of pain. Yes, I still have a brain injury. But you'd never know it. And no, I'm not faking it. I'm just not concentrating on the things I can't do. I only focus on the things I can do. I'm no longer a yes woman. Not man. Yes woman. I'm no longer a yes woman. I take care of my needs first because what happens is you have to fill your picture first before you fill everyone else's cup. Don't forget, you have a cup, you gotta fill that too. And what I learned through this entire journey is that we spend the first half of our life building up who we are. Then we take the next couple of years of our lives unraveling who we are. And then something traumatic or something big happens in your life, like having a husband with 150 personalities, Getting into having a divorce, having a brain injury, cancer. We take, we wait for life, huge life events to uncover who we really are. The thing is, is who you really are is there. It's here. It's there. It's already in you. But because we're so busy pleasing the world and wanting to be accepted as we should be, we aren't who we are. And then we wonder, why are we so unhappy? Why? 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 Shut up! Listen to yourself, and you'll find out why. I have a quote that I love to use, but life, it's my quote, by the way. It's in my book. It's in my TEDx. Oh, I didn't tell you that, did I? I have a TEDx. I did it right after I came out of my brain injury. And I thought I wasn't going to be able to speak again, or talk again, or walk again, or speak or talk. Isn't that the same thing? Whatever. 
Anyways, I thought I was never going to talk and walk again. So when I was asked to do this TEDx here in Colorado Springs, I did it because I thought it was my swan song. And in my swan song called Each Week and Be Merry, I declared to the world that I would no longer be the feather in the wind, that I would steer my own ship. I would be the wind in my life. I would live so fully and so joyful with life that if I died today, this, this night, tomorrow morning, everyone in my world would know that I lived fully and that I loved what I did. The reason I say that is because you have to see my TEDx. I was 389 pounds. What we all don't realize is everything you want is inside of you. I was the woman I thought I was supposed to be. Because you know, all women, when you hit your 40s, you're going to gain weight. You're going to be achy. Right, guys? You're going to be achy, achy. And you won't be able to do this. You won't be able to. I know you won't be able to have this because that will cause you to There's all this crap we've been told all our lives that we've been buying. I proved to myself by being the best version of me that it's all crap. You choose what you allow in your life. If you want to be sickly, don't take care of your body. If you want to have, you know, whatever, don't take care of that. If you want to feed your grass. Life is not easy. It's a difficult journey. Change is not easy. Life is nothing but change. Change is not a, a field of daisies with butterflies, you know. It's not that. It's hard. But what's beautiful about change and the journey is that it helps you become, unravel the best version of you, who you really are, what you're made of. And with every trial, you will realize that, hey, wait, I survived that. Oh, oh that's good. I survived that. And you build this amazingness of everything you survived. But you have to remember what you survived, because whatever you survived, you're supposed to learn from it and pass it to someone else. It's not for you to keep private. That's why I'm so proud of everyone who shares stories like this. Because it's not our duty to be quiet about the things and the pain we've gone through. We are supposed to share it. So, I ask you again. Do you know where you're going to? Do you like the things that life is showing you? Where are you going to? Do you know? Thank you. So if you don't mind just hanging out there for a little bit, we're going to close up a little bit differently than uh, normal memoirs. But guys, uh, one more time for Mr. Mirage here. Thank you. What an incredible story, right guys? Um, so for those of you, again, if this is your first time, thank you so much for being here. For those of you who have been supporting this event, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I know Flip and Maritza are going to be really sad that they missed out on this one. I know we had some technical issues, but uh, I know that they're excited to be able to watch this one. Uh, if you are interested in being on this stage, uh, email us, memoircos at gmail.com. 
again, a simple like and follow on Instagram, Facebook, and also on any of the podcast platforms uh, goes a long way for us. And next month's theme is going to be, that's what made me change. And so uh, I don't know if they have set up speakers yet, but if you are interested in speaking for that theme, go ahead and uh, email us at mrcos at gmail.com. Um, I'm going to close this out a little bit differently than what we've done in the past, so I'm going to actually invite the guests to come up here, and then we're going to do actually a live Q&A session for about 10 to 15 minutes with the audience. If you do have a question, I'm just going to ask you guys to come right on up here so that way I can usually hand the mic off so everybody can hear. And um, first of all, how can we best support you? If you wouldn't mind just kind of letting us know what website, what social media, all that stuff, so that way we can better support you guys. Um, my 150 Husbands story is coming out, not yet, but I've been working on it and I have a Facebook group for discussing abuse and my story and how it can help others. And I also have business, Seven Star Phoenix. I'm a six-year Kung Fu master and a personal development healing transformation coach. So um, find us at sevenstarphoenix.com. For myself and Patrick, a lot of our stuff is two native sons. So everything I do falls under that umbrella. I've got a divorce podcast. We've got the Legacy Digging Podcast. So that's another avenue of the Legacy Digging Podcast, especially is hearing these stories that we've been able to privy and hear. I would highly suggest go hearing those stories, find those nuggets that they share, so you can create your legacy and see what you want to leave on planet Earth before you pass away. So, two native sons. I have two things I can help with. If you go to my website, it's Michelle Moras, M-R-A-S, Michelle with two L's on full of hell, michellemoras.com. You can find every link there, but I have a podcast and a TV show. So my podcast is called Dead and Pearls, you can find on every platform, and we also are on YouTube. Me and my partner, Brian Swanson, do a Denim Pearls, Business Catching with Pearls of Wisdom from the Porch. And then I have Mental Shift on TNC, the new channel, out of the Philippines, believe it or not. But it's called Mental Shift. And if you go to my website, you can find a link to Mental Shift. I need followers on both because followers. And uh, on Mental Shift, I do the same thing. I interview people from around the world who have experience something major in their life where they've gone from one type of thing and changed jobs or changed careers or changed their life, whatever it is, and we share their tools of how they overcame and moved to the next level. So, Denim and Pearls and Mental Shift, michellemoross.com. All right, guys, so you got that. Make sure that you go and follow and support uh, these awesome speakers. Can we get a round of applause for them for just coming up here tonight? All right, so audience, it's now time to hear from you. If you want to share a takeaway or if there's a question that you would like to ask any of the speakers or a general question for all three, now is your chance to kind of get to know you or get to know them, rather. And so any questions here from the crowd? All right, so this is for Tanisha, right? So I don't know if you covered this very well, I mean, you did, but not to the extent that I'm really curious about. So as you're going through this whole thing with 150 husbands, 
Like, I would have gone crazy. <laughs> and so what kept you sane at that point? If you, if you just elaborate just a little bit. Just a little bit. Great question. Um, one of the things that kept me sane was my faith at the time. Now, that has since in my life shifted. However, at the time, um, we were very God-focused, and I had a strong belief that he would be healed and that he could be healed. And I, I, um, I hung on to that, and I, I prayed and thought, you know, could I leave? Should I leave? Should I stay? And I always felt that it was just a little bit more important that I stay, even though I was free to leave. And um, that grounded me, and I, I fully immersed myself in my beliefs at the time, and tried to use that to help him, and I think that's what grounded me. Um, and in addition to that, there was enough love from many of them to me that, that filled me in a way to just keep me going. So those two things. We've got time for probably one or two more questions. Anybody else have a question in the crowd tonight? In the back? Mike's from Michelle. Um, just for women in general, I think it's hard to take care of ourselves or to focus on what we want and say no to all of those things. So my question is, you have children. And a husband. So, how did both of them, mainly your children, because I'm a daughter, react to that? I feel like if I saw my mom do more of that, it would help me. Like, I feel like the example that mothers set by being who they were meant to be is much better than a mother who tends to their children's needs. So, just I'd like to hear you speak about how your children reacted to becoming you. Rather awesome, actually. Remember, for two years, they were taking care of me. So they went from doting mother who never let them breathe unless I was helicoptering over them to non-existent mom. I was pretty much dead. And so they had to take care of me for two years. And when I came out and said, this is me, this is me, sorry. Um, for those of you who know that movie, <laughs> they, were, they were excited to see their mother come back to life. And my youngest, he said, this is the mom. This is the mom I always saw. He said that he would see glimpses of me as powerful as I am now. And then he said he would see me shut down. And so to see me fully step out to be the best version of myself and be unapologetic about it, they were so happy to see me be fully me. And what it's done is it's given them permission to say, no, I'm not going to let you take advantage of me. No, I won't. You know, I'm not going to succumb to that, that attack because you think I'm being mean or whatever they do and all that social media stuff. It's given them so much more of a backbone than I think the old me would have allowed them to have. So me being free freed them. And what's beautiful about it is it freed my friends around me. They would see me do things and you know what? I think I can do that too. You, you felt, yeah, children, we're met the fall, we're, we're human. The important part is, are we going to get up? Well, heck yeah, if you're around me, you're getting up. 
you better scrape off that stuff. Where's that mechila corn? What's that red stuff that kids, kids moms used to put on their kids? They used to put red stuff on the burn iodine. But you get up because we're meant to fall, to learn, and get back up. And my kids love that. So I think it's unique on that one when you bring that up, uh, especially for women. Uh, the unique thing is a lot of us have to have this idea that it's okay to be selfish so we can be selfless. But I think a lot of women, for whatever reason, have the approach that they can't do that, what society tells us, which is a bad thing, because you end up getting a lot of women that are burning out and ended up missing out on their true purpose because of what society tells, tells you what when it happen. So I think it's the idea of being selfish, which is not the selfish that we all think it is. It's the selfish for yourself, so you can go pour out like you talked about being able to be that pitcher and pour into other cups. So. Well said. Um, one last question, anybody from the crowd? Sorry, like <laughs> I may mean, not be able to see the pitcher because I'm there in the back. So. I hear discussion. Is there a question over here? My question is also for Michelle. Um, I really, you, you talk about how whenever you were just trapped in your head, you were fighting those voices the whole time. And um, I'm really curious what made you decide that you were able to fight them, or like what really was the driving force to say, like, no, I am worth it, you know, whenever you had nothing but those voices. me fighting because I was afraid to die. I mean, those voices, the end line for every, oh, I'm going to cry. Every one of those voices, no matter what they said, the line, the bottom line was, this happens to you because you should be dead. You are worthless. And I would hear it in, unfortunately, my parents' voices. You're worthless. You should have never been born. And, and I'm like, but, but look at all the good things that happened. Look at my family, look, and it was, I don't want to die. I can't die because they love me. People love me. No, they don't. But they do. Someone does. I'm still here. I remember crying, begging them to stop saying those terrible things. And at that end of that two-year mark is when I'm like, maybe they're right. There's at least 15 of them saying I should die. Maybe they're right. And that's why I said, God, the universe, whatever told me you're not dead yet. It's part of my mission to share that. That's why I coach, that's why I speak, because I know a lot of us have those voices that come in our heads. And it's part of my gift by living that I must let people know you're not the only ones that hear those stupid voices in your heads. And when I wrote my book, It's Not Luck Overcoming You, I talk, it's the book I wrote in my head. It's what I found at the end of all this. My inner critics weren't trying to make me die. They were trying to make me fight for my life. And so that's really what, oh, spoiler alert, that's what my, my second book is about. It's about, <laughs> it's about fighting for what you mean, for what you believe in. And if I had, that's why I'm so big on being the best version of you and being unapologetic, because those inner voices aren't trying to hold you back. They're doing, how much do you want it? How much do you want it? I want it back and I don't want to die. Then do something.
Guys, I hope you had an amazing evening this evening, uh, listening to the stories, raw and unfiltered. Uh, we, have, we hope that you enjoyed your evening, that you would support us by showing up again, telling your friends, liking us on the Facebook page, on the gram. And uh, again, so we are Memoir COS, and tonight we heard from Tanisha to make sure that you're kicking ass. We heard from Scott to show up unscripted, and a great reminder from Michelle that you're not dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Colorado Springs. Again, big shout out to Samantha Sargent, Andrew Hasley for all his help this evening. And guys, we'll be back next time.